Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I occasionally like to look at the history of car companies. Car Cars are tech, after all, and, you know, the stories behind car companies are often fascinating and Typically, they're really complicated. They frequently involve strategic partnerships and acquisitions and mergers and other big moves that can make it a little tricky to trace a history in any kind of linear way. So we're going to try to do that today because nothing worth doing is ever easy or something. So we're going to explore the history and the impact of General Motors, which you could argue is one of the big origin stories for how the automotive industry got so complicated in the first place. And like a lot of my episodes, this story will actually begin before there was any General Motors to speak of. And it will go on after GM ceases to be, because, spoiler alert, that happened, The General Motors today is not the same as the one that was founded more than a century ago. Now, to talk about the history of General Motors, we actually need to talk a little bit about the history of the automobile itself, and more to the point, the history of automobile companies. Now, I'm not going to do an exhaustive history here, because that would require talking about all sorts of stuff that doesn't actually apply to General Motors, like air-propelled land vehicles that used wind power, or compressed air engine vehicles, or steam-powered tricycles and wagons and all that kind of thing. We're instead going to skip ahead to the era of the internal combustion engine, the gasoline-powered engine. But if you if you folks want me to do an episode talking about the various early attempts to build a horseless carriage and the different methods that people tried, let me know, and we'll all take a very historical and extremely bumpy road trip together. Now, the first automobiles powered by internal combustion engines originated in the mid-19th century, around the 1860s, but it really wasn't until the 1880s that engineers stuck around with experimenting with these things long enough to make automobiles that were more than just a curiosity. Carl Benz and Gottlieb Daimler independently did this. But ultimately, their work would converge later on with the formation of the company Daimler AG, also known as Mercedes-Benz. But that would happen in the 1920s, and Carl and Gottlieb never actually met one another. But the early days of the automobile were really uncertain, to say the least. While people like Benz and Daimler were building automobiles as sort of a proof of concept and occasionally racing them against other people who were making similar type of vehicles— Getting any sort of substantial investment behind the effort was difficult, so people were not yet convinced that a horseless carriage really had any legs, so to speak, or wheels, I guess. Anyway, they weren't sure that these automobiles were ever going to be something that people would actually use. Meanwhile, over in the United States, a guy named George B. Selden applied for a patent as the inventor of the automobile. He did that in 1879. Now, that predates Benz and Daimler's automobiles from the 1880s. However, the patent office didn't award Selden the patent until 1895. Selden had never actually built an automobile. He just 
presented the design for one. So he gets the patent in 1895, and that was after Benz and Daimler had already built their internal combustion-powered automobiles. And so there's a little debate, <laughs> putting it lightly, about who the inventor of the automobile really was. But honestly, I would say it's all kind of meaningless for a couple of different reasons. One is that, like most really big inventions, the automobile is really more of the product of a lot of different people working on different things, and ultimately those various forms of work converged. So you can't really assign the invention to just one person. For another, all these people are dead. So, you know, it's kind of a moot point. Now just watch. Just because I said that, I bet my car is going to get haunted by angry German ghosts. I'm kidding. I don't believe in cars. I mean, ghosts. By the early 1890s, the United States was starting to see engineers building out cars that would form the foundation of future companies, such as the Duria Motor Wagon Company, which made 13 whole cars in 1896. Now, the reason I wanted to start with all this is that the General Motors Company began not as an automobile company all of itself, but rather as a holding company that bought existing automobile companies. So in other words, GM started out as a means of consolidating multiple car companies in an effort to combine resources and share the load across different groups of mechanics, engineers, inventors, salespeople, and so on. So let's talk about some of the companies that would form the early foundation of General Motors before we get to GM itself. One of the earliest companies GM would purchase is Buick, which was founded by David Dunbar Buick. He was born in Scotland in 1854, and his family immigrated to America when David was just two years old. His father, who was a carpenter, passed away when David was still a child, and his mother remarried a native Detroit man who owned a candy shop. As a teenager, David worked for a manufacturing company that made plumbing fixtures in Detroit, Michigan. He apprenticed with a machine shop in Detroit, but then returned to that plumbing manufacturing company and became a foreman there. Buick himself became something of an inventor and an engineer. He secured several patents for various inventions and processes, including one that would allow you to bind porcelain to cast iron. That led to the development of really large porcelain bathtubs, among other things, that were incredibly fashionable at the time. Buick and a business partner named William Sherwood subsequently purchased the manufacturing company, which had fallen into a bit of financial shambles, and they renamed it the Buick and Sherwood Manufacturing Company. While the company saw great success, Buick himself was a little bit restless. He had become fascinated by gasoline-fueled engines. Not just automobiles, mind you. In fact, that wasn't really foremost in his mind. He was just interested in these gasoline-powered engines that could do all sorts of different work, including stationary engines for stuff like industrial uses. By 1897, Buick had dedicated some of his company's manufacturing capabilities to producing gasoline-fueled engines intended to be used on farm equipment. Sherwood, meanwhile, was becoming a little miffed that Buick was not tending to the plumbing fixtures company, and ultimately the two decided to part ways. Buick liquidated his ownership of the company he owned with Sherwood, and he used that substantial sum to found a new enterprise called Buick Auto Vim and Power Company in 1901. 
One of Buick's engineers was a guy named Walter Marr, who had been building gasoline-fueled engines for boats. Now, the story goes that Marr wanted to build a full automobile at Buick's company, but David resisted. He thought it was safer to build engines and not worry about stuff like automobiles. Like, build the engines for automobiles, sure, but don't need, you don't need to build the whole automobile yourself. Marr and Buick had some spats, with Marr, you know, quitting and returning a couple of times before that quitting stuck in 1902, whereupon Marr would actually work with another person we're going to chat about, Ransom Eli Olds, and Marr's replacement was a machinist named Eugene Richard. Also around this time, Buick reorganized and renamed his company, now calling it the Buick Manufacturing Company. Guess all that vim must have worn out by then. Buick did produce a couple of car prototypes. By 1903, the company was in a bit of trouble as investors were starting to get nervous and pull out of the company. But then Frank and Benjamin Briscoe, the Briscoe brothers, swooped in to help fund Buick's efforts to produce a Buick-branded automobile. The Briscoes owned a sheet metal business, and they saw this as a way to bring different but related businesses together for mutual benefit. Benjamin Briscoe would end up buying the first official Buick for himself, and the company went through another reorganization and transformed into the Buick Motor Company, with the Briscoes overseeing the financials. So they had a substantial stake in the company. They essentially owned it, and now Buick was working for the Briscoes. The first Buick, apart from an earlier prototype that Buick had sold off, uh, was an open-air vehicle, and you'll hear this a few times in this episode. It had a padded bench-like seat mounted more or less in the middle, lengthwise anyway, of the chassis. The driver would steer the vehicle using a steering wheel, but that was not always a given in early motor cars. In fact, the prototype that Buick had produced earlier, the one that he had sold to his uh, former engineer, Marr, you had to steer with a handle, not a wheel. It was more like a like a rudder-style steering mechanism. Now, that original prototype that he sold to Marr was uh, sold for $225. How about that? If you adjust that for inflation, that would be around 7000 bucks today. Now, I'm not sure what the actual Buicks, the first-run Buicks, sold for, the ones that were being produced for actual external customers. I only know that, that Marr paid $225 for that original prototype. Now, I do know that the early Buicks, such as the Model B touring cars, were modest in power. No big surprise there. The Model B had a horsepower rating of 15 to 21 horsepower. Now, if you're not a car person, and I'm not much of one, you might wonder what horsepower actually means. It's a unit of measurement for engine power, and it's the amount of power needed to move 550 pounds one foot in one second or the amount of power needed to move 33,000 pounds one foot in one minute. The term dates back to the days of James Watt, as he was trying to convince people to buy steam engine machinery. He was comparing how powerful his steam engines were to horses, which were the main source of power generation for a lot of industries. These days, the typical American car generates 120 horsepower. Though, as you might imagine, there's quite a range on this due to different types of cars on the market. So a 15 to 21 horsepower vehicle is much less powerful than what you would typically drive today. 
Now, the Briscoe brothers did not hold on to Buick for very long. They sold their stake, and thus their control of the company, to another corporation called Flint Wagon Works in Flint, Michigan. David Buick was now working for a totally different company. In 1904, a man named William Durant, another person that we're going to talk about a lot a bit later, came in and purchased controlling interest in Buick from the Flint Wagon Works. By the end of 1904, the Buick company had produced just 37 automobiles. But since this was in the early days of the automobile industry in the United States, that 37 automobiles meant that Buick was just in second place across the nation. First place was being held by Henry Ford's motor company. Durant would make Buick the centerpiece of the company he intended to build, which I'm sure you've all figured out now would eventually be General Motors. Now, before I move on, I would like to talk about what happened to David Dunbar Buick, and it's a bit of a sad story. So he was now working for William Durant, but he had also had a seat on the board of directors. However, Durant began to push Buick further out from any meaningful role in the company. Kind of makes me think of how Steve Jobs was treated in the 80s over at Apple. And it seems as though Mr. Buick was a disagreeable sort who often found himself at odds with other disagreeable sorts. A lot of cantankerous people in the automotive industry in the early days. There were a lot of uh, oil and water mixtures, in other words. Also, Buick's health was taking a turn for the worse, and he really wanted to move someplace west to live in a climate that was less humid. He left Durant's employ in 1909 with a huge severance check and some stocks, and he moved to California. There, he founded an oil company, and he ran into some trouble when the New York Times named the securities firm that represented the Buick Oil Company had been guilty of stock fraud transactions. So it wasn't his company, but rather the securities firm that represented his company that got in trouble, but that meant he got wrapped up in it as well. And as a consequence, Buick's oil concern was effectively wiped out. He subsequently got involved in real estate deals in Florida, which sounds like the plot to Glen Gary Glen Ross. Anyway, that didn't work out either, and he did have a brief return to running an automotive manufacturing company with the Lorraine Motors Corporation, but saw little success there either. By 1928, he was living in poverty, and he passed away the following year. Very sad. While Buick's vehicles would serve as the entry point for Durant's foray into the automotive industry, he would acquire a bunch of other companies, and thus car models. When we come back, we'll learn about some of the other cars that joined the GM family shortly after Durant had founded the company. But first, let's take a quick break. Now let us turn to another pioneer in the automobile business whose work would become part of the young General Motors. Now, have you heard of Oldsmobile? Some of you younger listeners out there may not have heard of it at all, as GM stopped making vehicles branded as Oldsmobiles back in 2004. For those who have heard of it, you might be surprised to learn that the name Oldsmobile comes from the man who founded the original Oldsmobile company. It comes from his name, Ransom Eli Mobile. Wait, no, I'm sorry, Ransom Eli Olds. Born in 1864 in Ohio, his family made the move to Lansing, Michigan. Michigan, obviously, the birthplace of the automotive industry in the United States. 
They moved there when Ransom was just a kid. He grew up interested in mechanical systems, and by the mid-1880s, he was experimenting with building steam-powered automobiles. He graduated to gasoline-powered cars in 1896. By 1899, he had founded the Olds Motor Works Company, securing financial backing from a dude who was really into wood. By that I mean Samuel L. Smith, who owned a large lumber operations and had amassed a significant amount of wealth. By 1901, the first Oldsmobiles were available for purchase, and by 1904, the company had sold 5,000 of them. There was a terrible fire at the Oldsmobile manufacturing facility, and the only prototype to survive the fire was a design called the Oldsmobile Curved-Runabout, Runabout is a style of early automobile, and you should search for images of this vehicle, and you'll have an appreciation of what a car was back at the turn of the 20th century. The Runabout is an open-air vehicle, and it looks a little bit like a sleigh, but with wheels instead of, you know, sleds or skis, and it has a handle for steering, sort of like the old-fashioned rudder steering mechanisms I was mentioning earlier before everyone got fancy and started using steering wheels. Now, at the time, it cost $650 to buy one of these babies, which, if we adjust for inflation, would be right around $19,000 in today's money, so not an unreasonable amount for a new car. Olds was known for employing advertising and publicity in a savvy way early on in the automotive industry, so I suppose we can thank Ransom for the incredibly weird history of automobile dealership commercials. He also used a stationary assembly line, the same kind of thing that Ford also would end up doing. It was a stepping stone toward mass production, and it's what allowed Olds to build and sell so many cars within three years. And granted, I know that 5,000 cars in three years is not a lot by today's standards, but we now live in the era of precision mass production. This was before that. He also arranged to purchase transmission systems from the Dodge brothers, from the folks who built the Dodge cars. So the early days of the automobile industry were both competitive and a little cozy. Also in 1904, Ransom had a falling out with Samuel, and Olds would actually leave the company he had founded. He went on to create another car company, originally called R.E. Olds Motor Car Company, but later just known as REO, which had a quick rise and then a precipitous fall in the automotive industry. It became a leader in the industry in 1907, but then began to decline in 1908. After that roller coaster of a journey, Olds began working on other things, such as a lawnmower. So that's a shout out to a recent Tech Stuff podcast where we learned how lawnmowers exist because medieval Europeans like to build castles. And he too would get involved in real estate in Florida. He retired in 1925 and would pass away in 1950. But Olds had left his original company in 1904, so he wasn't part of the deal that would bring Oldsmobile to General Motors. Durant would acquire Oldsmobile not long after he had already acquired Buick. And now, let us consider Cadillac. So this company also has a bit of an odd history, and part of it goes back to Henry Ford. Ford gets a lot of credit for the success of the automotive industry in the United States in the early days, and for good reason. He was the most successful 
of all the car manufacturers at that time. But success wasn't always a guarantee with Ford. His first company, the Detroit Automobile Company, began in 1899 to a rather rocky start. He reorganized and renamed the company a couple of years later and called the new enterprise the Henry Ford Company. But Ford didn't see eye-to-eye with the people who actually fronted him the money to establish his company, and by 1902, Ford was out. But he took his name with him. His third company would go on to be the huge success. That's the actual Ford Motor Company, the third one. But let's go back to that second company for a second. What happened with that? Well, once the tiff with Ford happened, the financiers behind the company decided they needed to bring in an expert to figure out what the value of all their assets were so that they could liquidate them, sell them off, hopefully cover their investment, or at least mitigate any losses. So to that end, the investors called in a machinist in Detroit named Henry Leland, who had his own manufacturing company and who had produced engines for Oldsmobile previously. Leland came in and took a look around and said, Say, fellas, you really ought to stay in the business. You got yourselves the infrastructure to build your own cars, and you've already done enough work that with some tinkering, we can make something special. I am paraphrasing, of course, but the investors agreed, and Leland got to work. He called both the car and the company Cadillac, named after the French explorer and self-proclaimed noble Antoine Lomé de la Mort Cadillac. That's the guy who founded Detroit. Also, as I say, historians believe that he was not in fact a noble as he called himself, but rather just assumed that. Either way, he is credited for founding Detroit. And Leland's original design was a bit of a Frankenstein's monster kind of thing. Not in appearance, but in parts. So he started with Ford's chassis design, which the company owned because Ford was so disgusted by his falling out with the investors that he didn't pursue the rights to the designs before he left. He kept the name so they couldn't call it the Ford Company or anything like that, but they owned everything else. And Leland decided to continue the design he had been working on for Oldsmobile for an engine. It was a design that the company had actually turned down. So it had a an Oldsmobile intended engine and a Ford chassis body. Leland's own manufacturing company would produce all the transmissions and the engine parts and other components for the new car. Well, this actually gives us a chance to talk about what it means to have a single-cylinder engine. We need a quick rundown on what cylinders are. So cylinders are the part of an engine that howls pistons, and a piston can move up and down the length of the cylinder, inside the cylinder, kind of like a plunger in a syringe. And there's a tight seal inside the cylinder. There's typically like a piston ring that keeps a nice seal against the interior wall of that cylinder. Modern cars almost all use the same general approach to create motion. It's called a four-stroke combustion cycle, also known as the Otto cycle. That's O-T-T-O, named after Niklas Otto, who came up with the idea in the 1860s. And the four strokes in question are called intake, compression, combustion, and exhaust. So imagine that you've got a vertical cylinder. Okay, we're looking at a cross-section of a cylinder. Now, the plunger-like piston comes up from the bottom of the cylinder. It never goes all the way out. It may withdraw to the point where 
the end of the piston is, is essentially at the bottom of the cylinder, but still inside it. At the top of the cylinder, you've got a pair of valves and a spark plug. So one valve only allows a mixture of air and gas to enter the cylinder. However, it prevents anything from going back out the valve. That's how valves work. They allow one-way direction of flow. Now, the other valve is an exhaust valve. It prevents anything from coming into the cylinder through the exhaust valve, but it will allow exhaust to go out at the proper part of the cycle. And the piston has a repeating cycle of moving up and down inside that cylinder. So when the piston is moving downward, like it's just completed one cycle and now it's starting to move down the cylinder away from the intake valve, that valve opens and a mixture of air and a small amount of gasoline come into the cylinder through the intake valve. The exhaust valve remains shut, so the descending piston is kind of drawing in that mixture into the cylinder itself. Upon reaching the bottom of its stroke, the piston reverses direction and now it begins to move up the cylinder. The intake valve is shut, and the exhaust valve is shut too, so the piston acting like a plunger in a syringe is actually compressing that mixture of air and gas. This is the compression stroke because that mixture has nowhere to go. It can't escape the cylinder, so it has to be compressed. As the piston reaches the end of its trip up the cylinder, having compressed the gas and air as much as it can, the spark plug, well, it sparks and it ignites this mixture. This is the combustion stroke. And the power from that combustion, which is effectively an explosion with that compressed mixture of air and gas, that pushes the piston down forcefully. So it goes down the cylinder quite fast. So the piston goes back down to the bottom of its stroke, then it reverses course, heading back up. And as it moves up, the cylinder's exhaust valve opens. And like the intake valve, it only works in one direction. So the piston drives out the exhaust in the cylinder out through the exhaust valve. When the piston comes up to the top of this stroke and starts moving back down again, the exhaust valve closes, the intake valve opens, and the whole cycle repeats itself. In the next episode, by the way, we'll talk more about those spark plugs because this cycle requires initiation. It's not like it's perpetual motion. It doesn't just start and then never stop. You have to start that cycle system. But in the old, old days, you had to do that manually. So we'll talk more about that in the next episode. However, Let's talk about the rest of this system. So the other end of the piston, the part that's not inside the cylinder, attaches to a crankshaft. So the reciprocal motion of, mo of the piston moving up and down transforms into rotational motion through interaction with the crankshaft. That powers the drivetrain of the vehicle. So the repeated cycles of combustion are what give the vehicle the oomph it needs to power the drivetrain and thus go into motion. It's kind of like those old hand cars that you would see on railroads, or at least movies and TV shows that would have the hand cars on railroads. I think I've only seen two of those in real life in my entire life. But instead of using human-powered force of pumping the handrails in order to get the cart moving, this is using the explosive power of ignited air and gas, and that's why it's an internal combustion engine. So the first Cadillacs had that single-cylinder engine that was intended for Oldsmobile. So there was only one cylinder with that particular one, with one piston in it 
providing the power for motion. Most cars today have either four or six cylinders, and most trucks have either six or eight. Generally speaking, more cylinders means that the vehicle will have more power. It will be able to climb steeper hills or go faster, but it also means greater fuel consumption and thus lower energy. So Henry Leland brought two different models of Cadillacs to the New York Auto Show in 1903. Uh, One of the models was called a runabout, just like the other vehicle I talked about earlier. This was a two-seater vehicle. And then you had the Tonneau. And that had uh, two additional seats, essentially a second bench added behind the first bench. So you then had a four-seater. They were a big hit at the New York Auto Show. Leland sold all three of the cars that he brought to show off. And he started to take orders for more than 2,000 vehicles at the show. Those orders required a $10 deposit, which went toward the $750 sales price for a runabout. Uh, the Tonneau, which doubled that vehicular capacity to four riders, would cost an extra $100 on top of that. In 1905, Leland decided to experiment a little bit more, and he ordered the design and construction of a prototyped Cadillac he named the Osceola. A machinist named Fred J. Fisher was put in charge of creating the vehicle, and he led a team of mechanics to make something really interesting. So what set this vehicle apart from most others at the time was that this Cadillac had a closed body. So it protected the rider, the driver, from the elements. It had windows on all four sides looking out from the passenger cabin, which was pretty snug. I think it looks to me like you could really only fit one person in there comfortably. And it had a top speed of 40 miles per hour with a 10 horsepower single cylinder engine. The drivetrain was a chain drive, which provided power to two rear wheels on the car. So it was a rear wheel drive vehicle. The prototype is pretty darn cute. If you want to look it up, look up like the 1905 Osceola. That's O-S-C-E-O-L-A. If you want to see a picture of it, um, It was a little too tall for its small chassis. If you look at it, you can kind of see that it's it's the chassis doesn't extend very far out. So it's kind of taller than it is long. And that made it a bit top heavy. And that's not the safest of cars if you're driving around sharp turns. The experiment did teach Fisher and his team a great deal. And before long, Cadillac began offering closed-bodied vehicles as an option for buyers. And by 1910, they made it so that the closed-body model was standard. In 1908, Sir Thomas R. DeWar, a member of the UK Parliament, awarded Cadillac the third-ever DeWar trophy and the first to ever go to an American car maker. The reason he gave the award to Cadillac was because of Leland's approach to using interchangeable parts during car construction, which made it really easy to produce and repair vehicles. So the story behind Dewar was convinced is a pretty fun one. A British distributor for Cadillac brought three Cadillacs to a test facility. Then he had mechanics disassemble all three of those Cadillacs, then mix up all the parts between those three, reassemble those parts back into cars, and then test each of those cars on a 500-mile series of courses. All three vehicles passed the tests with flying colors, showing that the parts from one Cadillac were exactly the same as any other, thanks to the precision of the manufacturing process. 
And that's the reason why Dewar gave Cadillac the award for that innovation, because he saw that as pushing the invention of the automobile forward. In 1909, on July 29th, General Motors acquired the Cadillac Automobile Company for the princely sum of $4.5 million. Today, that would be closer to $131 million. Durant actually convinced Henry Leland's son, Wilfred, to sell the company, but Henry Leland did stay on as an executive with General Motors until 1917, whereupon he had a tiff with GM's leader, Durant, who I swear we're going to cover before we get to the end of this episode, because he had a, has a pretty crazy story too, and Leland founded a new car company called Lincoln Motor Company. Now, ultimately, Lincoln would become part of Henry Ford's automotive empire, Pretty interesting end for someone who had started off as one of Henry Ford's most fierce competitors. Leland and Ford really went at it. So it was interesting that the Lincoln Car Company would end up going over to Ford. Leland himself would pass away in 1932. Now we've got a few more bits and bobs to talk about when it comes to the founding of General Motors, which we will get to after these messages. Okay, Buick, Oldsmobile, Cadillac. These were three of the big names brought together by General Motors. Another one was Oakland, though you're more likely to have heard of Oakland's successor, Pontiac. Or maybe you haven't heard of either of them, as GM discontinued the Pontiac brand in 2009, but let's get to their history. Now we get to learn about Edward Murphy. Born in 1863, Murphy started off apprenticing with hardware dealers, and over the years he gained knowledge and experience, and by 1893 was ready to go into business with his father-in-law. Together, they created the Pontiac Buggy Company, as in horse-drawn buggies. Business went fairly well for a time, but the clock was ticking, and by the early 1900s, Murphy saw that there was no future in horse-drawn buggies. Murphy partnered with a mechanic and designer named Lanson Partridge Brush, who had previously worked with Henry Leland back at Oldsmobile when they were making engines for that company. And then he followed Leland on to Cadillac and assisted in the design of the Cadillac one-cylinder engine. So yeah, this is the guy who designed the engine that Oldsmobile initially turned down and that subsequently became the original Cadillac engine. There are no records of Brush having ever attended anything beyond high school level education, so the general consensus is that he was a very gifted designer who learned through observation and experience. Murphy and Brush, and some investors, created the Oakland Motor Club in 1907 and began making cars in 1908. They named it after Oakland County, Michigan. The city of Pontiac is there. Brush would leave before the end of 1908, hoping to pursue his own dream of building a car with a two-cylinder engine and getting some money from the Briscoe brothers. See, I told you the automotive world in Detroit was a pretty small one. Brush would go on to found the Brush Runabout Company, but that company went out of business a few years later. But Brush went on to have a successful career as a consulting engineer. He worked for numerous companies over the following years. He passed away in 1952. Back at the Oakland Motor Company, Durant approached Murphy with an offer, and Murphy sold off his share in the Oakland Motor Company in 1909. Tragically, 
he died not long after making this deal. He passed away in the summer of 1909. At that point, Durant was able to convince the other shareholders in Oakland Motor Company to sign their stake over to General Motors. GM would later create the Pontiac brand as a sort of spinoff of Oakland. Only the Pontiac cars sold better than the Oakland ones did, so then GM decided to phase out the Oakland brand and keep Pontiac around for several decades. I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the next episode. Now, there are some other companies that General Motors acquired early on with names that might not be as familiar to you unless you're a car history buff. So, for example, another company Durant acquired in 1909 was the Ewing Automobile Company, previously known as the Cleveland Auto Cab Company. The Cleveland Auto Cab Company was to produce a car called Geneva, but then the company owners decided to rename the brand Ewing after Levi Edward Ewing, a major investor in the company. Uh, That particular Ewing, Levi, would then go on to buy the company itself. While Ewing was able to produce around 30 vehicles, uh, it was impossible to scale up operations in Geneva, Ohio. There just wasn't enough of a talent pool for an experienced workforce in that part of the country as far as automobiles were concerned at that time. The company was poised to relocate to Erie, Pennsylvania, but before that could happen, Durant came in with his offer and Ewing accepted it. The Ewing line wouldn't make it very far in the history of GM. General Motors would discontinue it in 1911. Other companies that GM acquired early on included Cardacar, the Rapid Motor Vehicle Company, and the Reliance Motor Truck Company, which was sort of the ancestor to GMC Trucks. The Carter car was really interesting, largely because it featured a friction drive, but I don't quite have enough time to go into that in this episode, maybe in the next one. Now, if you've listened to my episodes about businesses that make lots of acquisitions, you know that that kind of a strategy is a risky one, and that's because all these acquisitions begin to pile up, and at the same time, you're accruing a lot of debt, because you have to spend a ton of money to buy these companies. Manufacturing cars is also pretty expensive, so you still have your operating expenses to deal with on top of all these acquisitions. And then there's all the distribution and sales side of the business. So GM was in kind of a precarious position. It spent an awful lot of investors' money, and there was the danger that the company might overextend itself, and then it would just be a massive debt machine. And this brings us to finally talk about William C. Durant, the man largely responsible for creating General Motors. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1861, but he grew up in Flint, Michigan. Like a lot of the other people I've mentioned in this episode, Durant found a living originally working in the carriage industry, as in the horse-drawn carriage industry. In 1886, he co-founded the Durant Dort Company and manufactured carriages, which made Flint the carriage capital of the United States. As various investors and engineers developed early automobiles, Durant saw both an existential threat to his business as well as a huge opportunity. I mean, it was a threat in that should these horseless carriages prove reliable and useful, it would inevitably lead to the decline of the carriage business. But it was an opportunity in that if someone could build out a business that could find a way to produce cars in enough volume to sell them at moderate prices, you could make a killing. And that's what led Durant to make his first acquisition of Buick. 
But that wouldn't be enough to achieve his goal. He needed to add other companies for a couple of reasons. One was that he needed to increase the scale of production to bring those costs down. And it was way easier to buy out somebody else who had already done the work of creating a manufacturing facility and also a manufacturing process than it would be to build that kind of stuff out from scratch. At least it's easier as long as you had people willing to give you money so that you could do it, and Durant had those people. But another big reason was that Durant could see that different people had different preferences when it came to automobiles, just like everything else in life. So it made sense to offer up a variety of different options. Some might appeal to one person, but not another, and so on. So he began to envision a business in which different types of cars could occupy slightly different places in the market. You could have cars that cost a little bit less, maybe they're a little less flashy, a little less powerful, but you could appeal to people who want a car but they can't afford the more impressive or luxurious models. So you could build out different lines of cars, marketed under different brands and aimed at different potential customers. That was sort of the early thinking, though Durant hadn't made much progress on that by 1910, at which point things went rather pear-shaped for Durant for a bit. Durant's acquisitions had spooked his investors, who were worried that their money was just going to sink into an ever-expanding group of car companies and that they would never see their money back. It would just be a big problem labeled General Motors. The investors and Durant had a big old corporate battle, and Durant was the loser. He had pushed the company to the point that it needed some significant help from the financial industry to cover the considerable debt that it had accrued, and Durant was shown the door. He had essentially founded General Motors in 1908 and was out by 1910, but this is not the end of his history with General Motors. Heck, it's not even the end of him getting kicked out of General Motors. See, when he was given the boot, Durant landed on his feet. See, I always land on my rear end. Anyway, one year after being ousted from General Motors, he co-founded a new car company called Chevrolet. This company took its name from a couple of the other co-founders, brothers Louis and Arthur Chevrolet. Oh, and there were several other co-founders involved as well, but that's a story all in itself. So Chevrolet built a manufacturing facility in Flint, Michigan. Chevrolet would make a few expensive cars that very few people could afford, but the company followed that up with a vehicle called the Series 490. It had that name because at least originally, it sold for the princely sum of $490, which made it one of the most affordable cars on the market at the time. Durant and Louis Chevrolet had several differences of opinion, and ultimately, Durant would buy out Chevrolet's shares in the company. The Series 490 proved popular enough to fuel Durant's ambitions. Durant was building up more wealth, and with that wealth, he was buying up shares of General Motors. He essentially bought himself back into the fold at GM, which became complete in an acquisition between General Motors and Chevrolet. By 2016, Durant was back in the driver's seat, as it were, and the new company he would oversee became the General Motors Corporation. Durant had also made some friends, not, not really friends, I guess, in the DuPont family, and they helped finance his takeover of General Motors. So, to sum up, William Durant saw the opportunity to create an automotive empire that he would call General Motors. 
He took several different young car companies with varying degrees of success under their respective fan belts and then brought them together to make cars at a larger scale. He even attempted at one point to buy the Henry Ford company early on, but Ford would only accept a buyout offer if it was in cash and Durant just didn't have that kind of cheddar on hand. Durant's acquisitions, however, made his investors nervous. They push him out of the company. He co-founds another car company, Chevrolet, builds that up, buys out most of his co-founders, comes back, takes over GM again. And we're only scratching the surface of this remarkable story. There's so much more to talk about here, including what was going on at GM between Durant's removal in 1910 and his return in 1916. That includes the incorporation of an electric starter, which won the company a second award from Dewar. And also what happened to that friction drive of the Carta car? Where did that go? But if I were to cover all of that for this episode, it would run another 40 minutes easy. And that's not even touching what happened in the years since about how General Motors would eventually go into bankruptcy and a new General Motors would emerge from it. But to get to that story, I've got to do part two of this episode. So be on the lookout for that next week. If you have any suggestions for things I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, let me know. Send me a message on Twitter. The handle I use there is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 